0: Our God and Father, Lord, we do praise you on this day. We thank you and we glorify you. We exalt you this morning. Lord, we have gathered to worship you and to lift you up and to sing your praises. We are filled with joy, Lord, at the very thought of you, high and lifted up upon your throne. O oh, Lord, you do reign over the world because all that is in it is yours. Father, we we look to you each and every day with strong confidence that Lord, you're in control. Indeed, Lord, our faith rests in your sovereign authority, in your glorious power and Lord, in the great and the precious promises that you have made to us, your people. Oh, Lord, we do thank you for the precious blood of our Lord Jesus, Lord, that washes away our sins. We thank you for the great things that you have done for us in Him. Indeed, Lord, He is precious to us, most precious. And God, we thank you for your great plan to save us from our sins. And we do praise you and we glorify you for your good grace. For this was your purpose in saving us, that we might be a people to the praise of the glory of your grace. And so, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your grace to us. For, Lord, we are undeserving, but you are gracious. And so we thank you. That, Lord, you sent Jesus to be our Savior, and what a Savior he is. God, he saves completely. Oh, Lord, we rest in what he has done to make us right with you. And, Lord, because of such great love, we also serve you. It is our privilege, God, and our hope to serve you all the days of our life. Oh, Lord, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord that we might serve you better. Father, that we might uh, glorify you and enjoy you each and every day of our life. Help us, Lord. We thank you for your blessed Holy Spirit whom you have sent into our hearts to encourage and strengthen us along the way. Oh, God, we are eagerly longing for that day when your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth even as it is in heaven and so Lord we pray come quickly bring it to pass O God And we thank you for such a promise as this Lord indeed it gives us hope to press on each and every day knowing that your kingdom is coming soon and Jesus the king our living hope is coming soon we thank you for all that you are to us and all that you're doing in us because of Jesus' holy cross, we pray. Amen. Okay, well, it's my privilege to be back with you again for another year of <coughs> teaching. Uh, of course, last year we, we went through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we spent September through May going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And as promised, uh, we're going to take up 2 Thessalonians starting today. I'm thinking it won't take quite as long as 1 Thessalonians that possibly we might finish by uh, January or something like that, um, but of course those are just thoughts, <laughs> so we'll, uh,
1: we'll see how that goes. Um,
0: as, we, uh, as we start diving into 2 Thessalonians, I want to encourage you this week to read through the book of 2 Thessalonians a few times, just in one sitting, front to back, read through it a few times, and try to think of the book as a whole, if you will, which is what I'm really going to address this morning, to consider what's really going on in the mind of the apostle as he writes to these Thessalonians, and what are the main themes that he is discussing, and why? What are the obvious points that he's making in the book? Just give some real thought to the actual words that are there and the actual content of the message that the apostle is delivering to the church. I think it will help you immensely as we start looking at some of the fine details that are given in the in the letter of 2 Thessalonians. And so uh, uh, with that, I, I want to just give you a little bit of reminder about uh, the city of Thessalonica, what was going on with the Thessalonians. Um, if you were here last year, we covered all of that in great detail. If you weren't here last year, you can go on the church website, which, by the way, the new church website has launched. Yay. Praise Yay. the Lord. Beautiful. And uh, thanks to, uh, to uh, Lauren Thomas and to... Uncle T. Payton, who is, uh, T. is the, uh, the designer of the web, and you'll, you'll see that he did just an absolutely fabulous Great. job. But uh, especially the, the audio section where we have archived all of our teachings, uh, in there you can, of course, find all of last year's teachings organized, just go to the adult Sunday school class, and uh, you, can, you can see all of the uh, audio right there. There's a player, you just hit it, it lights up immediately and starts playing. Uh, the, the handouts are there posted on the side as well. So anything that you feel like you need to go back and cover, or uh, if you weren't here, all those lessons are there to, to go over. Um, and so just, just a brief reminder about Thessalonica. You recall that Thessalonica was the metropolis in the province of Macedonia. So this is the region which is, if you will, north of Athens and and so on where uh, Thessalonica was uh, right at the very top of the sea where there was a harbor port and it was also where there were main trade routes that crossed through it. So if you will, it was kind of the largest city in the region and it was a city that was very heavily traveled because people were traveling through there because the main uh... trade routes went through the city of Thessalonica so because of that Thessalonica was a very large city and it was a city that was filled with transients people who didn't live there primarily as their home and so it was the kind of thing where well just all manner of thing went on there not to mention it was a city steeped in greek culture it was a city steeped in greek Philosophy and Greek religion and uh, of course we talked at great length about that last year, but uh, uh, just let's just suffice to say that the majority of the people in the city of Thessalonica were heavily given over to idolatry and to the worship of specific gods, that worship of which was repulsive to God, and uh, the practices of which religion Uh, violated God's commandments again and again. It was something that was of a very offensive nature to God. And um, not only that, it was a rather zealous uh, form of of Greek uh, religion that was alive at that time. And this is seen very clearly by how heavily the Thessalonians were persecuted for their faith. And uh, I, I might also remind you that the Thessalonian church was a very young church. And you recall, as you read, there's, a, a, there's an account of when the gospel is brought to the city in Acts chapter 17. And uh, it's there where um, uh, Paul is, is coming through the city of Thessalonica. He goes to the synagogue. He begins reasoning with the people. He has a fair number of converts which uh, for the most part are what they call God-fearing Greeks. And uh, he, he gains a fair following there. But Paul's only able to stay there for about three to four weeks. And so for three to four weeks, Paul is there preaching the gospel and making disciples of those who were converted, at which time he is run out of town by an angry mob of Jews who have stirred up, a whole mob of others to come and, and uh, bring bodily harm to Paul and his uh, fellows, Timothy and Silas. And so they flee the city of Thessalonica after having been there about three to four weeks. And um, then they flee about 50 miles away to the city of Berea. And um, you remember that the mob in, in Thessalonica was so angry that they chased Paul all the way to Berea and ran him out of Berea too. And and so, if you will, they were very agitated by this preaching of the gospel and by these converts that Paul had um, won through the preaching of the gospel there in Thessalonica. And so in the book of 1 Thessalonians, the the entire chapter, chapter 1, is Paul commending this young church for their great faith and thanking God, if you will, for the amazing things that he had done in them and that how this little tiny young church was just thriving in the midst of all of this persecution that they were enduring because the church itself came under serious persecution even after Paul had left. And even at the time of the writing of 2 Thessalonians, which has advanced now many months uh, past the time of Paul's communication with them in, in First Thessalonians, uh, they're still undergoing serious persecution, and it's not just a mild persecution. It's 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 referred to in the letters as much affliction and and uh, much uh, persecution and sufferings is the way it is described. And Paul likens it, you remember, in First Thessalonians chapter two, verse fourteen. Paul likens their suffering to the kind of suffering that the Jerusalem church was undergoing at the hand of the Jews. And uh so we know therefore that it was really severe because what was taking place there was people were losing their property, they're being thrown out of the city, they they were, you know, ostracized by their family, ostracized by the by the Jewish church um and and the, the persecution was very severe. Well, so um what what happened Uh, there was a very remarkable thing, and that is that from that little church that was only discipled some three to four weeks, it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that the gospel had sounded forth from that little church to all of Macedonia and all of Achaia and even beyond those regions. And so what we have is this model of this little young church that got saved and they got on fire for Jesus And they started reaching people all over the place. And uh, they were a gospel preaching machine. That's what they were. And so, if you will, not only that, but Paul writes commending them for their great faith, for their love. And he speaks to them in a way that uh, is very uh, commending for how they have... um, grown in their faith and how they have shared the gospel and if you will this little young church in Thessalonica becomes for us a model church and uh, it is an amazing thing that happened there in Thessalonica more than I think we realize um, what God did there was absolutely amazing and miraculous Well, so that's kind of a a little background on on Thessalonica and on how the Thessalonian church was established. And if you will, I want to just kind of dive in and talk about for a few minutes the two letters as a a whole, okay? Because you have to understand, we're studying 2 Thessalonians, okay? 2 Thessalonians is the second letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and if you will, it finds itself in the context and with the background of 1 Thessalonians, okay? The two, in that sense, are really one. It's, it's the, the founding apostles who founded the church are writing and communicating to the church on two different occasions. And if you will, the letter of 2 Thessalonians is building on the theological framework that the letter 1 Thessalonians established, Okay this is very important for us to keep in mind. So if you will, I want to talk about the context of both letters for just a little bit and just kind of give you some more background so that as we start to think about 2 Thessalonians, we realize how closely tied it is to everything that has already been established in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Are you with me? Yes. Okay. All right. So with that, let's look at page 66. You'll see that your lesson took up right where we left off last year at page 65. And um, so the lessons going forward here are page 66 and following. And uh, let's talk a little bit about 2 Thessalonians and then also 1 Thessalonians. So the date, the date of the writing of 2 Thessalonians. The obvious similarities between 1 and 2 Thessalonians make it rather easy to place the date of 2 Thessalonians. It was obviously written not long after 1 Thessalonians. And probably in response to information given after the delivery of 1 Thessalonians. So, as I've read through different uh, commentators, you know, they seem to place the writing of 2 Thessalonians four to six months after the writing of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Okay? So, it kind of gives you an idea. Of course, we don't really know for sure, um, but we do uh, obviously know that Paul is addressing issues that were pertinent even, even in the writing of 1 Thessalonians. So they couldn't really be too far apart. Um, let's talk then for a minute about the purpose, the purpose of 2 Thessalonians. Now, this book is only three chapters. And the topics that are covered in those three chapters are really very few and really very clear and to the point. And so the purpose is not really hard to discern. It's really rather simple. And it's obvious that Paul is responding to theological questions, even as he was in 1 Thessalonians. You remember how that happened, how Paul was in uh, Athens, and uh, he had uh, uh, sent Timothy back to the young church, and he had gotten a report back from them. And so Paul had a verbal report of how they were doing. And you remember that. The occasion of his writing of First Thessalonians, he was just rejoicing over the great things that God had done in the in the little church there. and um, uh, so if you will, when he wrote first Thessalonians, he was also writing in response to questions that they had given Timothy when he was there. And so he was writing to clarify some some doctrinal uh, uh, questions that they had concerning various things. one one of course, <coughs> is uh, questions about eschatology, questions about the study of last things. And so that's why we have, if you will, the Pauline eschatology given in these two letters. It is in these letters that uh, Paul is addressing those questions specifically that have come from the uh, young Thessalonian believers. So when we talk about the purpose, it is clear from the content of 2 Thessalonians that Paul is further developing thoughts and ideas from 1 Thessalonians. Therefore, the letter is named 2nd Thessalonians. Paul writes with some very clear intent here. Number one, to encourage the Thessalonians in their persecution. Now, chapter one, Paul goes right into this idea of mentioning again that they are under severe persecution, that they're suffering again. And right away, he's trying to encourage them in their suffering and in their, uh, in their persecution. And... Um, it's very clear that even the eschatology that is contained in the in the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians is actually written to encourage them in their persecution. Cuz basically Paul's telling them, "You see those people that are persecuting you? Let me tell you what's about to happen to them when the Lord Jesus is revealed in blazing fire with his mighty angels." And he's going to explain the end of those who trouble Thessalonians. And so even that little eschatology that we get there is, uh, is really in response to Paul uh, trying to encourage them in, in their persecution. So one of the you know the themes is is they're, they're suffering their persecution he's writing as an encouragement. And then also um, to answer key questions and address obvious misunderstandings about eschatological topics. Now, there is some uh, words in the first two chapters that Paul uses in kind of a corrective way. So it's obvious that he's trying to correct some misunderstanding that they have. And he even mentions in 2 Thessalonians chapter, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians verses 1 through 3, he mentions misunderstanding that they have that supposedly came from a prophecy or a report or a letter, uh, which which was really um, uh, misquoting Paul. And uh, he's trying to correct some misunderstanding that they have uh, as a a part of that. It is there where Paul actually talks about the timing of the rapture and of the second coming of the Lord. And so this was a key question that they had. What's going on here? Um, And so there was some misunderstanding that Paul was correcting. So, if you will, Paul writes to further clarify eschatological ideas which he had laid framework for in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, okay? And so uh, this is uh, a main theme in the book. In fact, chapter 1 and chapter 2 largely consist of eschatological teaching. There's very little in those those two chapters that are other than eschatological ideas and thoughts and so on and so forth. So it's one of the main themes of 2 Thessalonians is Paul addressing uh, eschatological uh, eschatological issues. And then also, uh, he is to give instruction about the Christian work ethic and also about church discipline. He writes in chapter 3 on these two topics. Um, And then again, uh, Paul's writing is somewhat corrective in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And he is speaking to them very straightforwardly and directly about the Christian work ethic. And um, and then he goes on uh, talking about how they are to deal with unruly uh, people in the church. And so if you will, there's a lengthy section on church discipline in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So I want to remind you again of purpose and themes that are contained in both books. And if you will, I'm just going to kind of give you an overview, although I've provided a lot of material for you to review, much of which was in the very first part of our lesson on 1 Thessalonians, but I just want to kind of give you again some more overview about the purpose and intent of both letters, okay? And so, if you will, the content of the things covered in 1 and 2 Thessalonians is really quite remarkable, because Paul had spent such little time with them, he writes to give both instruction and encouragement to them. Therefore, his writing is uniquely suited for their difficult situation, being such a young church and facing the difficult task of growing and learning with few mature leaders and persecution from other hostile religious peoples. Therefore, Paul's general purpose was one of encouragement and instruction but he writes with several themes and topics in view in order to address important matters needed in their theological development. His topics include joy and thanksgiving and encouragement for a healthy new church. So Paul's uh, writing to these Thessalonians is filled with much joy. It's filled with much thanksgiving to God for the things he's done among them, and it's filled with much encouragement to them to continue on the path that they're on. He's commending them for the... For the for the place where they are and the growth that they've had and the faith that they exhibit and uh, it's it's a very encouraging set of letters, but uh, as 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 writing to them he also then addresses uh, responsibilities of a healthy church, and so uh, there are some sections of text where Paul gives very explicit instruction to the church about church practice church life. Uh, and and dealing with with, uh, one another in the corporate body. And uh, he also then, of course, as a part of that, gives them instructions for godly living. And there are sections uh, in both letters where Paul is addressing how they ought to behave. If you're a Christian, this is how you live, he writes. These are things you don't do. These are things you do do. And he's very direct and straightforward. He gives many imperatives in these letters. He gives commandments. He tells them, this is how you live as a Christian. There's no other way. This is God's will. Right? That you would abstain from sexual immorality. Of course, here 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 they are, this little church in this vile, sexually immoral culture. And they of course have been saved out of these religions, and you can imagine the intense pull and tug as they're surrounded with this kind of wickedness on a day-to-day basis and uh, the idolatry was just rampant there. There was The worship of many many hundreds of different gods and hundreds of different religious cults that existed there. And uh, so he's, he's giving them a lot of very strong uh, imperatives in these letters and uh, nevertheless he does that with much joy and encouragement. But then also he's addressing eschatological topics Of grave importance and so with that I would just want to point you at the bottom of page 66 uh, some if you will uh, some of this joy and thanksgiving and encouragement that Paul gives one of the things you remember from the first letter of Thessalonians was that kind of in the background of some of what Paul was saying was the doctrine of election and uh, I think it's in verse uh, 4 that he mentions this of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, that he mentions that they are who they are because God had chosen them. And then he goes on kind of giving these fruits of their faith, which are giving proof, if you will, that God had chosen them. Well, he does the same thing again in the letter of 2 Thessalonians, uh, there at the bottom of page 66. In 2 Thessalonians Paul continues his encouragement to them, expressing his gratitude for both their great faith and abounding love, as well as their perseverance and the serious persecutions they were enduring. If you look at the letter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul is right off the bat. In chapter 1, he says to them in verse 3 and following, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Then we see a little later on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, he writes of this election, again, trying to affirm for them, that their uh, salvation is founded firmly in the sovereignty of God. He says in verse 13 and, and 14, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, again, Paul is there reminding the church of their election, that they are in the faith because it is God's purpose for them to be in the faith. Amen? And that God is the one who is going to see them through to the end. Right? Which is obviously the uh, conclusion we draw from the idea of God's electing grace. Amen? Amen? If God's chosen you for salvation, what do you suppose will happen? You'll be saved. All the elect will be saved. Amen? Will any of the elect be lost? So when Paul reaffirms their election, he's saying to them, God is going to uphold you till the end. Amen? In spite of the severe suffering you may be facing. This was indeed a model church of faith, hope, and love, and holy lives who were both evangelical and steadfast, even in the face of persecution. And so talking about, again, both letters um, and the responsibilities of a healthy church, I have this quote here from MacArthur that kind of uh, gives an overview of purposes and themes in the two letters. MacArthur writes, The Thessalonian epistles catalog the marks of a healthy, growing church. They give the responsibilities of the leaders to the congregation, the congregation to the leaders, of believers to grow spiritually spiritually, to stand firm in the midst of persecution and live orderly lives and the church's responsibility to discipline sinning members. They also emphasize the church's responsibility to reach the lost world with the saving truth of the gospel. This letter gives such clear and concise instructions on church life, its message can hardly be mistaken. And so, if you will, even though it's a rather short uh, uh, section of, of chapters there's eight chapters in total between the two letters there really is a lot that's covered it's rather comprehensive and I think suppo- uh, I'm supposing that the the nature of, of what's covered in the letters is because they're such a young church and Paul kind of has to touch on several different issues things that they really need to solidify in their understanding and so if you will uh, there is quite a quite a few things uh, uh, covered in, in in the purpose of both letters together. Of course, uh, there on page 67 there is a section there, instruction for godly living and corporate church practice. Of course, we went over much of that in First Thessalonians, but I want to point you down toward the bottom of that section there, and uh, there it says in Second Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 6 through 14. Paul writes a lengthy section explaining the process of church discipline and commanding them to carry it out, specifically how it relates to the problem of the Christian work ethic, which was being disregarded by some in the Thessalonian church. And so I quote for you there chapter 3, verse 6, where he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Those are interesting words from the apostle. Would you agree? How often have we heard such a thing in the church? It's interesting um, how clear the word of God is about corporate church practice and things we are to involve ourselves in. Well, if you will... In chapter 3, it's verses 6 through 14 that um, uh, we receive quite a bit of instruction on, on both the Christian work ethic as well as church discipline. And it's this topic of the Christian work ethic that's really being violated in the church that Paul uses to talk about how you deal with members who are doing such a thing. For example... If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Have you heard that before? That comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Okay? And, um, you know, Paul's not playing games here. He says, we command you. This is what you are to do. This is an imperative in the church. Amen? So many churches today don't even practice church discipline. They don't even know what it is. You may have been in a church like that. It's because we're playing games instead of serving God. You with me? What games are we playing? Well, whatever the latest Christian games are. (coughs) Whatever bandwagon the pastor has hopped on in recent days. Whatever wave we're riding. You heard that term before? (coughs) Well, let me tell you, it's an old, old story. There's nothing new under the sun. Certainly there's nothing new under the topic of how we ought to love and serve God and behave in the Christian church. Amen? For this is the subject of much New Testament instruction, which is given to us in a very clear and concise manner. Amen? And we wonder why we don't experience the kind of things we see going on in the Thessalonian church. Because we're unwilling to obey the Word of God and do what it says. Knowing that that is for our good and it's for our blessing. Amen? And it's for our joy. Amen? Well, God help us as we work our way through this letter to grasp what God is saying to the church through the apostle, Amen? So then lastly, talking about these themes of uh, eschatological topics of grave importance, I want to say to you, as you're reading this week through 2 Thessalonians, I want you to think about this. The topics that are (coughs) in 2 Thessalonians are of massive, massive proportion. I mean, right off the bat, he's jumping in chapter 1, to the second coming of Christ and he's talking about Christ's judgment on the unbelieving world when he returns and he uses language in the in the first chapter of 2nd Thessalonians which is the most frightening language in all of the Bible were you aware of that it is absolutely stunning to think about the ramifications behind the things that Paul is saying in, in this short letter um, not to mention that when he goes into second Thess- I'm sorry into chapter two of Second Thessalonians, he gives a lengthy discourse on the Antichrist, and of such hot topics in Bible prophecy as the Antichrist, it's amazing to think of just the concept of such a person, of such a being existing on the earth, and, if you will, the things which God has ordained for that man to carry out. It's absolutely stunning because, of course, his main ministry is deception. He is there to deceive. Deceive what? The nations of the world. Of course, we get further insight on who he is in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11 and 12, but then also in Revelation chapter 13. There is a, a, a clear vision, if you will, an apocalyptic vision that John has of the rise of the Antichrist to power and subsequently the, uh, the things that he brings to pass on the face of the earth during that time. Of course, that's where we get the idea of the, the mark of the beast and the idolatrous system that the Antichrist sets up. But do you realize that there in, those, in, in Revelation 13, the Bible says that the whole world will worship the beast and say, who can make war with the beast? And, and that, if you will, the, the whole world follows this Antichrist. Well, here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul's going to tell us why. Paul's going to give us some insight about the Antichrist we don't find anywhere else in Scripture. And and really he's building off of principles and ideas that we see in other places, but he makes it very clear and concise in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he talks about how because people refuse to love the truth and so be saved, that they are swept away in the lying signs and wonders that this Antichrist does. And that God himself sends a powerful delusion to deceive under this man's work, and under his evil practice that uh, if you will sews up the fate for those who have rejected the gospel and uh, it is just uh, a, an unbelievable thing to consider how the world as we know it is going to culminate in this deception under this man who is almost himself like the devil incarnate and uh, how the Bible is so clear about these things that are yet to come upon the world. So these ideas are just shocking. You look around the world today, man, they're, they're not concerned about the second coming of Christ. They're not concerned about the Antichrist. That's a bunch of Bible myth. They don't even mention it. They ignore it. Right? And, and yet, this is the fate which is yet to come upon the world. I might add, soon and very soon. Amen? But so here, right here in the Scripture, God is giving us some most profound, most profound thoughts and ideas about where the world as we know it is heading. Of all of the Pauline writings, First and Second Thessalonians deal most profoundly with eschatology. By eschatology, we mean the study of last things or of end times. In fact, the issues that Paul deals with here have absolutely massive implications for the whole world of mankind. Whereas Paul actually speaks in great detail about the end of the world as we know it, the eagerly expected second coming of Christ himself to deliver his people and to bring judgment on a world full of rebellious sinners. The things which are here spoken of are some of the most profoundly important writings in all of the word of God. Truly these warnings from God prove the very divine character of the Bible. Think about this. Who but God could speak of these things that are written in this letter of 2 Thessalonians? Amen. Yeah. Who but God could warn the people of the earth that his conquering king is coming to subdue all rebels and that he's coming with mighty angels and power to overcome all mankind on the face of the earth? and that he's coming with a fierce judgment against those who have rebelled against him. So fierce is his judgment that he will separate them from his presence forever, and they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. That they will be appointed to eternal destruction, is what Paul says in Second Thessalonians. Who but God could warn of such things? Who has the power to interrupt history like the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you with me? This is shocking stuff that is contained in these words. And we ought to pay heed. Amen? Very profound things. It just to me it speaks of the the divine character of the words of the Bible. There are no other writings in the history of the world outside of Scripture that can speak to us like this. Because nowhere else does God speak. Are you with me? There are warnings in Scripture that only God can give. Things that have never even entered the heart or the mind of man. Well, What book in all of human history has spoken with such majesty and authoritative imperative as the Bible when it speaks to us about the end of the world at the powerful hand of God and the coming judgment of mankind? Here in Thessalonians, we get a sneak peek at these most important and crucial issues of Bible prophecy. And it comes to us in the form of instruction and practical explanation for us to understand very clearly and concisely. So talking about what some of these are. And again, I'm, I'm talking here about both letters, not just the second letter, although I am going to address some things in the second letter here. Um, we need to be thinking about the eschatology of both letters. Are you with me? The things that are written in 2 Thessalonians about eschatology are further developing eschatological framework that was laid down in 1 in Thessalonians. You follow me? So it's important to know the context in which Paul is saying what he's saying. So then, uh, some of these topics are deliverance of God's people at the first resurrection. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18, we have the famous passage on the rapture of the church, which even deals with the death of Christians and their future hope. Here is pictured one very important event called the first resurrection. Now, you can go back and see pages 49 through 53 of our notes to, to get a lot of detail about that. Which, by the way, if you need some, some of the notes from last year's lesson, there are some copies back there on the table in the back. So, we also learn in 1 Thessalonians that we are not destined for God's wrath like the wicked, but more than twice we are given promises of deliverance from God's wrath. So one of the things about eschatology in these two letters is God is promising his people deliverance. Amen? We know that Christ is coming to do what? To deliver us. This couldn't be any more clear than it is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 where Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, you guys are suffering in persecution, but let me tell you, Christ is coming to give relief to suffering Christians. Christ is coming to deliver persecuted Christians. And let me tell you, when he does so, the uh, ramifications for those who have been persecuting you are severe. Right? That's some of the main meat of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. But, of course, it's in First Thessalonians that we're told, verse chapter 1, verse 10, that they, Thessalonians, are there to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who does what? Delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, Jesus delivers us from, from God's wrath. We're not appointed to wrath. Amen? We're appointed to salvation. That's who we are. We're God's people whom he has saved. Amen? And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if somebody comes along to you and tells you that at some point you Christians are going to endure the wrath of God, what do you say? You say that emphatically denies the clear teaching of Scripture. Amen. Okay. So, then also, what's pictured in both letters is the second coming of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, there's a reference to the second coming of Christ in every chapter uh, ch- chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 13. You see, throughout the letter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul keeps talking about this coming of Christ. And he's kind of building their hope and their expectation as he goes through the letter of 1 Thessalonians that this coming is going to happen. The word in in Greek is the parousia. And so in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, you're waiting for his son, right? Implying that he's what? He's coming. And then chapter 2, verse 12, he speaks of the coming of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 13, he speaks of the coming of the Lord with all of his saints, right? And then in chapter 4, he culminates with a description of what happens at the coming. He gives a vivid picture of the second coming of Christ. He describes what will happen at this parousia. Okay. And so um, 1 Thessalonians has much about the second coming of Christ. Um, note that in 1 Thessalonians 5.2 and also 2 Thessalonians 2.2, this coming is referred to as the day of the Lord. So when Paul talks about the coming of the Lord, he's talking about the Old Testament prophecies, which were referred to as the day of the Lord. So Paul equates the Old Testament idea of the day of the Lord with the parousia of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does that in both Thessalonian letters. He does it in chapter 5, verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians. He does it in chapter 2, verse 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Okay? That's a very, very, extremely important Thing in the study of biblical prophecy is understanding the relation between the day of the Lord and the coming of Jesus Christ. Okay? So also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 through 10 we have not only a reference to the second coming but also the destruction of the ungodly and judgment of those who have rejected the gospel. There, Paul writes, and he says in verse 7, "...to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. That is a very profound and striking passage of Scripture. Amen? Of course, later in chapter 2, verse 8, we have a reference to the Lord Jesus himself personally destroying the Antichrist at his coming where he says in chapter 2, verse 8, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Amen? So much there. Um, So then also, there is an explanation of the coming day of wrath and judgment, including instructions about the Antichrist and great tribulation. So if you will, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul is there talking about the day of the Lord. And he's saying that that day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night to the world of unbelieving, rebellious sinners. They have no idea. It's completely unexpected to them. And whenever they're saying peace and safety, then what? Sudden destruction comes upon them. But he says to the Christians, but you are not like them that that day should overtake you like a thief. In other words, you're not just going to be going ignorantly through your life, buying, selling, planting, building, marrying and giving in marriage up till the day that the Lord returns. You're going to have eyes wide open. You're going to be eagerly awaiting. You're expecting to see Him. Jesus says, see, I have told you ahead of time. Amen? And so we're not going to be overcome like a thief by the day of the Lord's return. Let me tell you, we're going to be eagerly, so eagerly awaiting, right? Jesus says in Luke 21, when you see all these things begin to take place, lift up your head, for your redemption is drawing near. Amen? So he goes on, um, going on at the bottom of page uh, 68 there, uh, Paul quotes in chapter 5, verse 4, You, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. So, if you will, when Paul makes reference to some of these things, you have to understand that brings us into the context of the whole Bible. And here's what I mean by that. If if Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, and he says... That Jesus himself is going to destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. We see right there in 2 Thessalonians the destruction of the Antichrist. Amen? Are you with me? So, does that not immediately then pull us into the context of every other place in Scripture where the Bible says the Antichrist will be destroyed? It does. Because Paul is giving us insight. That may be insight that he has either directly from the scripture or through some prophetic revelation from the spirit. Either way, Paul is talking about the destruction of the Antichrist. And here's what he tells us in 2 Thessalonians. He says it's the Lord Jesus himself who's going to do it. And he tells us how. With the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. Okay? All of a sudden I see this picture in Revelation chapter 19 where we read about the destruction of the Antichrist and him and the false prophet getting thrown into the lake of fire when the Lord Jesus returns on a white horse, him who is the word of God, amen, and a sharp double-edged sword proceeding from his mouth, right? You remember that picture in Revelation 19? And what does Jesus show up and do? He shows up and destroys the Antichrist. Therefore, these verses in 2 Thessalonians immediately bring us into the context of Revelation 19. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So this is how we start seeing these passages in Scripture bring us into the context of the whole Bible in other places. For example, in the book of Daniel, we have uh, much teaching about the Antichrist. And so as we study and learn about the Antichrist, we need some of this background from these other places in Scripture which is why I sent you the list of preparatory reading for these things. You you want to know more about the Antichrist? You need to go understand Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9, 11, and 12. All those places give us more details about the Antichrist, who he is, what he does. None so clearly, though, as Paul's writing in 2 Thessalonians 2. Let me tell you why. Daniel's writing and apocalyptic visions that he had. And he's giving explanation of apocalyptic visions. When we look in Revelation chapter 13, what do we see there? It's an apocalyptic vision of the Antichrist. Many of these things are veiled. He's talking to us in apocalyptic language. Paul is not doing that. Paul is giving us a didactic passage in Scripture where he's explaining jot and tittle. Are you with me? He's opening it up and unfolding it. He doesn't use any apocalyptic imagery at all. Zero. In 2 Thessalonians 2. But he tells us very specific details about the Antichrist and what's going to happen. So if you will, here's what I'm saying. It's one thing to read apocalyptic literature and to see the, sim- the symbolism uh, and imagery that's used in the apocalyptic vision and try to come to an understanding. It's another thing entirely to have a didactic passage of scripture where these things are explained to us. Are you with me? Much of Jesus' writing in the Olivet Discourse is actual didactic teaching even though there is some apocalyptic imagery there, much of what he's saying, he's giving us very specific details in a very specific way. And so, uh, if you will, we need to pay attention to these things. So, um, with that, I want to uh, tell you just briefly about some things to expect. Looking halfway down on page 69, there's a section that says similarities and differences between 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Okay. Uh, while 1st Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11 affirms that Christ's coming will occur at an unexpected time, 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 says that definite signs will appear before Christ returns. Note also that this tension between unexpectedness and signs preceding Christ's return exists in the Gospels, including in the Olivet Discourse of our Lord. Throughout Scripture, we are told of the certain and imminent return of Christ and yet we are given signs that will precede his coming in vivid detail and accompanying order of events leading up to his return. Okay, now, what I'm saying here is that in the two letters of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, there is a tension Because in 2 Thessalonians, we are told that the coming of Christ is going to be unexpected. Yet in in 1 Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians, we are told that there are certain signs that are going to precede his coming. So there's a tension between those. Now let me tell you, so profound is this tension that those in higher criticism of the scripture have rejected the letter of 2 Thessalonians as being part of the canon. Not only have they done that, they've rejected Paul as the author of it because they said Paul didn't believe that there would be signs that preceded the coming of Christ because in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, he talked about an unexpected return. That's how strong that tension is between those two passages. Okay? So how do we resolve that? How do we look at both letters and say, oh, these are both Pauline? What's going on in the mind of Paul if in First Thessalonians he says, there's an unexpected return. And in Second Thessalonians, he says, no, that's not going to happen until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness be revealed. So which is it, Paul? Help us out. What's going on in your mind? What are you thinking, right? Well, so if you will, the, that, the topic of that tension takes a little bit of insight in order to understand. We need to understand completely the full scope of what Paul's teaching in both letters to grasp it. So I try to sum it up rather quickly by saying, this tension, however, is easily resolved by an examination of these passages and a clear understanding of the intent and scope of the doctrine of imminency. In short, no one knows the exact day or hour that Christ will return. And scripture references there. But Christ, But Christians are told the season of his coming will be something they can clearly identify by the signs and events leading up to it. And scripture references for that. Signs and events that will be deceptively unclear to an unbelieving world. And scripture references for that. So, if you will, go pull these notes out this week. Pull out this little section on page 69 and go look up these scripture references and consider in your mind this tension between the idea of an unexpected return and yet signs preceding his return. Okay? Okay. That tension exists in the Scripture, not only in Paul's writing, it also exists in Jesus' writing, and so we need to understand how those two things work together. It's not one or the other. We it's not we can't we can't just do reductionism here. Okay, we need to understand what the Scripture is saying with this this tension. And of course, there there are different uh, resolutions to the problem depending on what view you take concerning the timing of the rapture. But nevertheless the tension exists, and it's addressed by most people who are commenting on these passages of Scripture. But then also, um, consider the idea of the parousia, and I want to leave you with this thought, that this idea of the coming or the parousia in 2 Thessalonians, okay, is built on the framework that Paul laid down in 1 Thessalonians about what the coming or the parousia was. Okay? So as Paul's going through 1 Thessalonians and in every chapter he's mentioning the coming of the Lord and then he gets to chapter 4 and he tells us with this big vivid picture what will happen at the coming of the Lord. Right? So when he does that um, he has built this framework of what the coming of the Lord is and what happens when the Lord comes. Okay? So that the parousia, if you will is equal to Paul's description in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through chapter 5, verse 9, which is where he gives this big, long description of what's going on there. Namely, what happens? The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud trumpet call and with the voice of an archangel. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Right? And we who are alive and remain will what? Be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we be with the Lord forever. Right? Then he goes on into chapter 5 and he says, This day is coming upon the unbelieving world, unexpected. That this day to them is going to be like a thief in the night. But you're not of the darkness that this day should overtake you like a thief. Right? And and Paul there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 2 calls that the day of the Lord. Now now that immediately brings us into the context of the whole Bible because the whole Bible is filled with instruction about the day of the Lord. You understand what I'm saying? Well, I have tried to kind of write this thought process out on page 69 and 70 with uh, scripture references so that you can kind of go through and try to understand what I'm saying. It is important for your understanding of the things we're going to address in 2 Thessalonians that you read the bottom of page 69 and page 70 and you grasp what I'm saying there. If you don't grasp that, you're going to have a real difficult time when I get to these sections of Scripture, okay? And I've given Scripture references again and again and again and again and again on each point that I'm making there. Suffice to say, though, this is the main point. (laughs) What Paul described the coming of Christ as in 1 Thessalonians is the background that he's built for what it is he describes it as in 2 Thessalonians. Because in 2 Thessalonians, he's further clarifying what the coming of the Lord is, when it happens, and events and details that will take place when it happens. Okay? You with me? So it's important as we study 2 Thessalonians. To know exactly what Paul said about the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians. Are you with me? Okay, so you'll, you'll, uh, you'll read and you'll read the Bible references on page 69 and, and page 70. Yes? Okay, praise the Lord. There's a lot there. There really is a lot there. It's going to take a little bit of time to dig into that. Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we thank you for such profound things that you have spoken to us in your word. God, I pray that we would with much faith embrace the things which you have said here. That, Lord, we would be eagerly expecting the return of our Lord Jesus. That, Lord, we would be eagerly waiting for him as he returns from heaven to, to establish his kingdom upon the earth. God, we pray that you would bring his coming quickly. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would uh, help us to live each day in light of this return. That, Lord, we would be stirred up in our faith and growing in holiness and growing in faith. Lord, abounding in love toward each one. Lord, that we would be loving one another with intense love. Lord, I pray that we would be such a gospel-preaching machine that we would engender persecution. That, God, we speak so loudly about the Lord Jesus and the saving gospel that it stirs up the world around us. Lord, help us to be bold in our proclamation of the faith. And yet, God, help us to stand firm even in the face of resistance. We thank you for the wonderful promises that we have. We thank you for the freedom that we have to gather in this place and to freely proclaim your word. We ask that you would give us insight and understanding into this section of scripture. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.